this is not the pony to ride into to save our democracy. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow, and this is the Weekly Roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And on today's outstanding panel, returning to the Roundup, senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC, the one and only Mike Madrid. Mike, we still haven't figured out your walk-on music. Yeah, but I noticed that you emphasize senior in my intro, and with this group especially, it makes me a little bit nervous. Great to be with you guys. Looking forward to it. Also returning to the roundup is the one and only Lucy Caldwell, a veteran political strategist and tech founder. She's a board advisor at the Renewed Democracy Initiative and a former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, as always, wonderful to have you back. I'm even more fired up than usual to be here, Ron. That's because up first this week, we are going to break down the potential no-labels third-party presidential run and why we're skeptical. Then we're going to talk about the rising concerns among parents, the record low trust in public schools, and the role of government in addressing these problems. Next up, breaking news, young Americans are capitalists. We'll break down some data from our friends at the Center for the Study of Capitalism at Wake Forest University and the connection between capitalism and democracy. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to zoom in on Wisconsin MAGA Republicans' attempt to abuse the impeachment process to oust a state Supreme Court justice who was just elected in a landslide earlier this year because their gerrymandered maps hang in the balance. To get ad-free access to the show, plus lots more on a private podcast feed, head over to politicology.com plus or click the link in your show notes today. Okay, no labels. Mike, last week on the Roundup, you mentioned that the best route to victory for Donald Trump in 2024 is having a third-party effort in the race. And that's where I want to begin today. Uh, with a full-throated discussion about the danger of what No Labels is doing, because I think it's important to tell the truth about this. But before we get there, uh, lest anyone think that what follows is some empty shilling for the Democratic Party, I want to offer some personal context. So when I stopped working for Republicans after they gave Trump the nomination in 2016, I realized just how much damage was being done to both the spirit and the machinery of democracy by the way the two-party monopoly has, in very specific ways, over time and by design, prevented more competition in our political system. And as it has made itself absolutely unchallengeable, it has manifested one of George Washington's major fears as he left office. Political parties did not exist then and were decidedly not part of the design of our electoral system. But when America was in its infancy, he could see them forming on the horizon, and this is what he said nearly 227 years ago on September 19th, 1796. They serve to organize faction, to give it an artificial and extraordinary force, to put in the place of the delegated will of the nation, the will of a party, often a small but artful and enterprising minority of the community, and according to the alternate triumphs of different parties, to make the public administration the mirror of the ill-concerted and incongruous projects of faction, rather than the organ of consistent and wholesome plans digested by common councils and modified by mutual interests. However, combinations of associations of the above description may now and then answer popular ends, they are likely in the course of time and things to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men 
will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. So I became concerned about how this monopolistic system was fueled by incentives that are misaligned with and increasingly less responsive to the most important inputs of representative democracy, which is the will of the voters being represented in the first place. And my sense was then, as it is now, that if it isn't disrupted, eventually the swinging pendulum that we think of as electoral power would keep swinging harder and eventually start breaking democratic norms. So for years after Trump's nomination, I threw myself into the deeply wonky project of finding out how it might be possible to go about doing that with the perspective of a practitioner that in the current paradigm, any marginal third-party effort would inevitably result in tipping the election to one party or the other. See also the percentage of the vote Jill Stein and Gary Johnson got in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin in 2016. The TLDR conclusion for me from that time is that it is possible, with a very long and sustained effort, that builds from the local level up. Okay, back to no labels. It is simply undeniable that the vast majority of Americans say they do not want to see a rematch of Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Many people are deeply frustrated. That is where we're headed. I have expressed before that I'm one of them, and I fought like hell to elect him. I fit their target voter profile. And we should give Joe Biden a standing ovation for having rescued the country from the certain nightmare of a second Trump term. He has enacted some solid bipartisan policy. He's given his progressive base a lot to cheer about. And now I would love to see him take a bow and make room for some of the Democratic Party's more promising youthful leaders. But by running again, Biden is doing what virtually every other incumbent president would do, has done, and arguably should do, given the position of the incumbency and the Democratic National Committee by refusing to hold debates and deprive Biden's Democratic challengers of oxygen, is doing exactly what it should do, given that the party already controls the White House. So, When no labels first began their wave of PR about their presidential effort, they pitched us to come on the show to discuss their plans. I said I'd love to have them, but asked to see the unredacted polling that they refer to in their PR package. They refused. We then met with Ryan Clancy in May and asked about the specifics of their go-no-go dates to remove their candidate from the ballot in each state if there is not an obviously viable path to victory, and specifically in battleground states like Pennsylvania and Georgia, Arizona, Wisconsin. They didn't have answers. We asked them about coming on the show. We looked at scheduling a discussion with someone from their team and someone who had uh, concerns about their approach, and they stopped responding. So, for the record, No Labels was invited to discuss their plans with real, live political strategists who are sympathetic to their cause, but know that there are tough questions that have to be answered. (sighs) And they went radio silent. So now over the weekend, former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan told CBS's Face the Nation that he hasn't ruled out seeking the presidential nomination in 2024 on a no labels ticket. And a big part of this has been no labels saying they're going to pull their ticket if they think it would be a spoiler. Larry Hogan said they'd pull it if they were a different, more acceptable Republican candidate, in their opinion. And they keep saying they'll only actually run a candidate if they can win. So here are the two big questions. First for Mike, can they win? And Lucy, can we believe them? Well, short answer is no, they can't win, especially not in the traditional sense. But look, I, I, I've always viewed kind of third-party efforts with this 
you know, kind of this, their adorable peculiarities. Like they're, they're, they're desperately trying to fill a void in a system that is not leaving people fully satiated. And I respect that. There's value in that. I have yet to, however, I have yet to. And remember, as the senior member of the, <laughs> of the cast, I was talking beforehand on this about the, the 1992 effort with Ross Perot and some of the team was like, well, who was that? Right. I was five years old, I think was what somebody said. Um, yeah, that was really the, the, that was really, I think, the time um, in, in living American history with, I, I, except maybe going back to the 68 campaign, which I was not a part of, uh, where, where there was actually these genuine openings. And uh, look, I, I, the, the danger of, 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 of saying simply to no labels that you're a danger and the chances that you're going to throw this to Donald Trump is one, first of all, it's absolutely true. And I agree with that. It is a danger, but it's also an attempt to stifle any movement in any genuine real discussion about the problem that so many of these other parties or nascent efforts are, are trying to do to get off of the ground. It's part of this calcification of the two-party structure. I'm not a big fan of parties. I, I never really have been, and I don't have a very strong partisan tie. Um, I never, never really have. But I, I also see the value in, in the fact that whatever you say about the two-party system, it has basically allowed us to be the longest, most functional, perhaps up until recently, democracy in, on the face of the earth, and, and arguably historically. So before you start tearing down the fence, let's start figuring out why it was built in the first place. That, that's one. Uh, the second, and I'm not, I'm not going to argue that that note labels uh, is, a, is a viable effort. I'm not going to argue that it's a real effort. I'm not even suggesting that it's a healthy effort. And I do, as I said last week, believe that they're putting candidates on the ballot in, in numerous states is the likeliest roadmap to Donald Trump winning. I, I get that. I've, I've said it. I'm raising the alarm bells, too. But I'm I'm at the point now where I am refusing to accept that, refusing to accept that as acceptable in a democracy that is clearly broken. And I think one of the biggest criticisms I get, at least on social media, when I do talk about this or say such things is from Democrats who will say, you know, this is the false equivalency argument. I'm not trying to make a false equivalency argument. I've burned my career down Republican politics to get Joe Biden elected. So, you know. Pound it, if that's what you're going to say in response. I, I, I just, I, I, there, there's something wrong with our, with our system. There's something very, very wrong with it. And there's also something very, very wrong, and I've been seeing this for 30 years, with the quote-unquote reform efforts or the nascent party efforts that have emerged over the last three decades to try to uh, mitigate the situation. They're really all of them. Every one of them that I've ever seen is a function of the same problem. They're a function of the same creature, and we wonder why there's no success. Granted, we've calcified and built into our structure the two-party system. It's virtually impossible. But even if it weren't, most of what we see in, in, in quote-unquote third-party efforts are not parties at all. They're not, they're not reflective of parties at all. And, and that's the big problem. And that's where I, I like the discussion, 
of what No Labels is doing is because, one, it should scare the crap out of everybody who's worried about Donald Trump taking election, first and foremost. But the second is, I think we need to have a real honest discussion about, about what is happening beyond the Republican and Democratic parties because, and look, I, I don't believe there's going to be a third party, certainly not in a traditional sense in the American political system. The, the big mythology is there's all these rational voters in the middle that don't have a voice. That is complete horseshit. There is no evidence to suggest that anywhere. You've got to really cherry pick to look for that. But that's ultimately where most of these party efforts come to, right? They either factionalize, factionalize on two or three issues and say, this is what we stand for, which is, which is literally the definition of a faction, not a party. Or they try to make this argument, completely mythical argument, that there's some middle that is unrepresented in the American body politic. And it's completely wrong. And it's why they all fail. It's why they don't go anywhere. And they shouldn't. End of, end of, the, end of my TED Talk. Okay. I'll wait for, you know. I'm waiting for Lucy's TED Talk. <laughs> there are so many threads to pull on. Um, I absolutely despise what No Labels is doing. Uh, I think it's absolutely horrible. I likewise don't think it's helpful when the messaging around no labels uh, is reduced to things like no labels is a pro-Trump super PAC, because that's not true. The supporters of no labels are people who, whether they are in the kind of cult-like team that is the team at No Labels HQ, who are very insular with each other, or they are some of the um, like well-meaning, truly well-meaning supporters and donors of No Labels. I believe that they truly believe that this is a magical moment in American politics and there is a lane for a unicorn unity ticket. And, and that is, that's what they have sold their surrogates on. That is what they are selling uh, new donors on. They're going to rate, they've raised tens of millions of dollars already. Uh, I, I want to first say, I think that they do believe that. And I think that when people talk about this as a secret squirrel pro-Trump grift, that's bogus. That's not true. And it's super unhelpful to the narrative because reasonable people don't think that. It's not. It's just not the case. I think also a thing that feels deeply personal to me about this effort is that I too, like Ron, find the two-party system uniquely threatening to a lot of core aspects of our democracy. And I think that the the exodus of regular Americans in really pretty unprecedented ways, away from party uh, registration, away from participation in party primaries, reflects that in so many ways, the two-party system is out of step with how Americans organize in their own lives, how they consume information, how they want to participate in civic dialogue. And yet we're in a structure where the only way, unless you are magical, the only way for the vast majority of people that we would like to see get into elected office uh, do so is to attach yourself to one of the two parties, which are not equivalent. I think the Republican Party is absolutely awful, but the Democratic Party also can't be healthy in this unhealthy system. Mm. <laughs> they, you just, the, mm. the two parties rely on each other, mm. right? To be, and That's we are well in said. an unhealthy environment. And so what I find so troubling about the no labels effort is actually the way it's, in addition to the fact that it could 
actually help reelect Donald Trump and will if they get on the ballot and proceed with this nut job plan is that the no labels effort is actually a thing that threatens the emergence of new parties. It is the it is the single biggest threat to the success of new parties. Period. No labels doesn't want to form a new party. In fact, Ryan Clancy, their lead political strategist whom you brought up earlier in the show, has explicitly called out in contrasting what No Labels is doing to what other entities are doing that they don't want to form a new party. No Labels is so asleep at the wheel about what they're doing that they have forgotten, for example, that the approach that they have taken to get ballot line access, party access, party status in so far 10 states, they don't even have party infrastructure, right? The chair of the No Labels party in all of these states that they have gotten on the ballot on is the same person. He doesn't live in these states. He is a random sort of erstwhile, sometimes never Trump, sometimes Republican strategist comms guy named Nick Connors, who's from Connecticut. He is not a person. I don't know if Nick Connors has ever been to Alaska, but I do think it's pretty weird that he's the chair of the Alaska No Labels Party. These, this is not a groundswell of humans. No Labels is using paid signature gatherers to buy ballot access in this state. And they're do, doing it in a way that is so dangerous that they have forgotten that you have to care and feed for ballot access and party infrastructure. They are so asleep at the wheel that they haven't noticed that in some of these states, including my home state of Arizona, whack jobs have already filed statements of intent to say that they are going to run as no labels party candidates. You don't have to believe me that this is going to be happening. Carl Rove, who thinks that the no labels effort is a bad idea, predicted that whack jobs would gain an interest and decide to run as no labels candidates. In Arizona, there's a guy who is going to run, he says, he has filed with the secretary of state that he is going to run as the no labels U.S. Senate candidate. Better let cinema know. But he's going to run as the no labels U.S. Senate candidate. He is a Carrie Lake devotee, Mike Lindell worshiping election denier. Why is this happening? Because you have to be really thoughtful about how you build political parties. And political parties persist. (laughs) And this is something that I have never built a political party from the ground up. Most of us have not. But people that I know who have been in very high levels of influence in political parties, including people who have been on this very podcast, like former Republican National Committee Chairman Michael Steele, If you get Michael Steele in a room and ask him about what it takes to run a political party, he will tell you that you have to build county by county, precinct by precinct. You have to, these are humans who have human relationships. So that is one of the ways in which no labels is particularly threatening. It is sucking all of the oxygen away from interest in other new party efforts. And it is actually a thing that is going to endanger them. If you want to build a new political movement, don't build based on the presidential line. Build by trying to get folks to run for school board or state legislature or really begin to have a fulcrum strategy. Like if you have, we're going to talk about Wisconsin later today. If Wisconsin had a few members who were not part of the Republican or Democratic Party, 
we wouldn't be talking in their state assembly. We wouldn't be talking about the risk that there's going to be this absolutely insane impeachment. More on that later. So, so that's one thing that that feels very personal to me as a person who actually works to make politics more competitive. I want I want to be a person who believes in the same dream that the no labels people would be. That is that would be great. It would be great to have people shedding their traditional two party identities, forming tickets with each other, and running for president. There are a million things that have to happen before we're in a position to do that. Not only structural reforms but just the, the the caring and feeding of political party infrastructure. They're also coming to the no labels unique value proposition and what they are saying versus reality. One of the things that no labels is relying on is the same idea that I cited earlier, which is that most Americans, as, as you cited, don't want a Trump-Biden matchup. They also don't want to associate with the two parties. They are independents. But no labels is making this assumption that when you do a poll and you get a, you know, you get 35% of Americans to say that they would like a candidate other than Biden or Trump, that all of those voters are a monolith, which is exactly the same types of assumptions that the two parties make about voters that have caused people not want to be part of their dumb, creepy tribes, right? Because people are not a monolith. Because then, when you then ask them, cool, okay, you people who say you want different candidates, who would you like to see? Let's throw some names out. Would you like Joe Manchin? How about John Huntsman? Or one of the other old white men that No Labels has on offer for us coming up in 2024? The support craters. Because guess what? The people who want different choices don't all want the same choice. So you suddenly go from... 35, 40 to like 15. And so we can have conceptual ideas about whether or not there's a desire for a new candidate, but that doesn't mean that there is actually a desire for whoever becomes the no labels chosen ticket. Not to mention the fact that a lot of the people who say they want a desire, have a desire for a new, a new choice, a third choice in 2024 are still voters where if you ask them, Will you come home for Joe Biden in 2024? They say they will come home for Joe Biden. (laughs) Even there's a lot, there are a lot of threads to pull on, especially around how anti-democratic and non-transparent no labels is, their insane convention, whatever. The fact that it seems like no one in their entity has ever familiarized themselves with campaign finance law. The fact that their map of winnable states was comprised of an intern who doesn't know basic things like how electoral apportionment they, they've got, works. They've got but their I'll, candidate winning <laughs> Illinois, which Biden but, won by a million votes. And both districts in Maine. Yeah. But I'll just leave you with this, a state that apportions electoral votes. But I'll just leave you with this. Last week, two weeks ago, early, last month, at the Republican primary debate during all the mass media junket stuff that happened, it, there was an interview given by Sean Spicer. Remember Sean oh, Spicer, flamingo outfit, Dancing with the Stars guy? Trump's first ever press a, secretary. Easter Bunny costume. Yeah, was press secretary for two seconds. <laughs> Sean Spicer, who is a Newsmax commentator, gave an interview where he gave analysis where he agreed that the presence of the no-labels ticket 
would tilt the election to Trump. So you don't have to trust me. You don't have to trust Third Way. Even Trump's own people in rare moments of honesty will tell you that a no labels candidacy is the best thing that could happen to Donald Trump, who will be the Republican nominee in 2024. Okay. To be clear, the reason I wanted to put this on the table today, and I think we have done it, is so that everybody listening can parse the very pretty sales pitch that they are seeing and are going to see a lot more of from No Labels because it sounds really nice, but they aren't willing to answer the very real tough questions. And um, and, and I, I think we've done that. Is there anything else for the good of the order on this point that people need to be aware? Or in a, in a single sentence, what would you tell people to tell other people, their friends and their family who are like, oh, this No Labels thing sounds really good? I, I, I'm not as animated about this. <laughs> so, so I just, I just, I'm just, okay. I, Lucy, Lucy texted me a while ago about asking this and said, like, what do you think about this? I'm like, I look, I don't think it's good, but I, 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 I'm, I'm, that's kind of where I'm at. You know what I mean? I, I mean, I, 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 I do think it is the best way for Donald Trump to get elected. That is true. Um, but like I said, there, 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 uh, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. I just, okay. it, I'm, D- d- yeah, no labels is not good. Certainly not this election cycle. Keep in mind that message will always be used as these nascent efforts start to be used. But I, the, the threat is very real. Yeah. It's dangerous. This is not something that we shouldn't be experimenting with this right now. I, I guess, I mean, I could go on all day about no labels and uh, we can yeah. do that another time, as Ron knows. <sighs> I guess I would just say that... One of the things that is present in our dialogue that I really hate in general is the idea that if you are a person who cares about democracy, and if you are a person, whether you're a political independent or a former Republican or a conservative who has put aside other things that are important to you because you think that Donald Trump or other elements of today's Republican Party uh, create a, an existential threat to our American democracy, you have probably been told a lot or heard basically that there's no time to think about anything else because all we can do is vote for Democrats and defeat Trump. And that's so demoralizing. Or that, you know, Democrats are, I don't want to sort of indict all Democrats, but a lot of Democrats really act like if you vote for them one cycle, they either own you and you must be sort of like pass all of their litmus tests or you're kind of like dead to them in other ways. And no one owns your vote. No one is <laughs> like entitled to your support. And and I really hate it. And I hear it a lot, including from never Trump Republicans, disaffected Republicans. Like, yeah, like a new party, that's for another day. Like, no, we have to solve this threat first. And and I hate that because I think that actually new parties, more competition, ranked choice voting, nonpartisan primaries, structural reforms, um, breaking up the relationship between our governments and these two parties who've basically enshrined themselves as quasi-governmental entities. That is all really bad. Th- those are terrible. Those fixing those things are how we are going to rescue our democracy. And it is really bad that like less, per- less than 10% of voters 
in general, even in high turnout years, vote in a in a single party's partisan primary. But then we all are stuck with the choices that like 25% maybe in a big year of Americans chose, the most partisan Americans. These are really bad. The pushing for competition in our politics, pushing for changes, pushing for new parties, in my opinion, that's part of how we get out of this mess because the two-party system is part of why we're so unhealthy. All of that is my long way of saying, don't feel like you have to succumb to the idea that support for no labels, that, that, that that's the thing that people who want more choice and competition in politics want. Because that's not true. I am not a partisan Democrat. I am a former Republican who, like, like the other, my friends here, burned her professional network down to fight Trump. I, I will never be a Democrat. I'm an independent. But I can tell you, <laughs> this is not the pony to ride into to save our democracy. It is a thing that is going to endanger all of the stuff that we all want. This week, Politico published a piece by Abby McCloskey, who's a former domestic policy advisor on Rick Perry's 2016 campaign and a Howard Schultz 2020 uh, exploratory committee advisor. She was looking at what the Republican Party has gotten wrong about what families need to thrive. And she believes Republicans have failed to adequately support vulnerable mothers and children despite their pro-life, pro-family rhetoric, uh, but that over the last year, schisms within the party have led to greater debate over policy. She posits that these conversations have been framed around economics and family affordability, the cultural phenomenon of declining marriage and birth rates, and the declining hope and generalized anxiety among parents with young children. And in June, Pew found that 40% of parents said they are extremely or very worried about their children struggling with anxiety or depression, which topped their list of concerns. Um, uh, a March Wall Street Journal poll found that 78% of adults said they did not feel confident that life for our children's generation would be better than it has been for us. According to Gallup, trust in public schools is at an all-time low. Many parents, especially dads, report spending less time with their kids than they want. And she notes that maternal mortality rates are rising that there are high rates of anxiety and depression among new parents that's attributed in part to a lack of paid parental leave relative to every other developed nation. Um, Mike, one of the things you reminded everyone of during our discussion on the affirmative action decision was that the real crisis essentially is the failure of K-12 education. And then that reminded me of something Lene said a while back, which is that uh, she thinks the Republican plans are bad on education, but that her party doesn't even have a plan. Just to be clear, Lene was referring to the learning gaps caused by COVID and the way administrators responded to the pandemic. Here, we're having a discussion about the much deeper problems with education and education policy. And so I wondered whether this triangulation around family-centered issues, specifically the stuff that has risen up in the wake of Dobbs and the Republican Party's failure to account for caring for families after the birth of a child, uh, but especially around... Um, around schools and school choice, uh, you know, I wonder if this is if there is some ground or there's an area where Democrats could pick up ground on it if they wanted to, if there was some will. I remember when we were going into uh, the 2021 election, there was a lot of talk about uh, schools and the controversy over schools being a really 
animating factor, and in tr- indeed that turned out to be true in 2021 in Glenn Youngkin's election, um, it wasn't as much of a factor in the 2022 midterms. So I wonder how you see this politically and whether there is uh, an opportunity for Democrats to do better, um, at least politically, here. The fact that Republicans are talking about policy, again, especially as it relates to K-12, is, is it's adorable. It's also not believable. And it never has been, by the way, not in my professional career. Frankly, it's offensive. I mean, I, I was a young re- Republican operative, you know, and, and you would hear some of these ideas and it was it, it started to become symptomatic of this general framework with when, which the Republican Party devolved to have no policy solutions at all, other than basically saying, let's just cut taxes and that will solve everything. Like you want anything like there, there were Republicans in the 80s and 90s were like, there's literally nothing a tax can't, can't solve. And of course, that was elementary and ridiculous. And I think ultimately that led to such emptiness that something like populism and nationalism could fill that void because there are there there are not a lot of serious republican policy thinkers anymore there just aren't there haven't there, whatever waning ones there were for a limited period of time are completely voiceless now in the trump era when you're seeing the rise of nationalist think tanks and the collapse of heritage for example which is just a spectacular burning crash but back back to specifically the education piece here the fact that Republicans have vacated the field does not mean that Democrats are doing a good job. And, and this, probably to the earlier discussion, is one of the most frustrating things about the two-party system, is one of the things that has always frustrated me is when one party wins, they believe that they've got some sort of mandate to govern or Im- impose their vision. <laughs> I, I, I laugh because it's so absurd and it happens every election cycle. It's like, oh, we won, so we get to do whatever we want to do. And then the voters reject that two years later. And the other side is like, see, we've got a mandate to do whatever we want to do. And education, unfortunately, is one of those issues. And, and in, the, in the setup, you, you, you stated it, you characterized it perfectly. Can Democrats pick up and take advantage of the situation? The answer is absolutely yes. But the caveat, the qualifier was, if there's the will. And, and there is not in the Democratic Party. Let me be really clear about that. There is not. Because I would disagree with Lene. There is a policy that the Democrats have, and they have decided to give the direction over the K-12 system over to their interest groups. Their that policy is, is teachers' unions. Their policy is teachers' unions. <laughs> yes. Okay? And I'm sure I'm sure there's going to be a massive listener reaction to this. Good. Good. Okay? Flame on me all you want. Okay? Because this, I have, I have dealt with this issue, especially with black and brown Democratic politicians in districts where children can't read, where they're not learning, where output levels are abysmal, where it's collapsing year after year after year, and everyone is saying, oh, let's just throw more money at it. Okay, I'm willing to throw more money at the problem. If you give me some accountability, if you give me some sort of metric that shows me that we're getting more for it, not because I'm some sort of a penny pitcher or some sort of right-wing you know, policy guy, but because I want to see value, the quality of life increase for the least among us, for those that the system does not work for, and the people defending that are those that would argue that they are the ones that are actually doing something about it. And that hypocrisy galls me. 
So I think that Lene, uh, love her dearly, but I think she's wrong on this. The policy decision that the Democrats have made is to defer whatever decisions that they would otherwise and should appropriately make as legislators to their interest groups, largely the unions. That is a policy decision. And once you make that decision and you have many, many decades of decline, you have to at some point accept responsibility that it is your job as a politician to tell your interest groups no, regardless of how much money they give you, and start saying, you know what? Maybe our children being able to read, not just at grade level, but to be able to read is something that is important in this society. And, what, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to lean into this even further. Sorry, if I haven't alienated anybody, then I'm going to alienate them now. It is, the, it is driven by a structure where white progressives who dominate the Democratic Party are completely unresponsive to, the, to black and brown voters, voices, and communities that need this change. When we talk about systemic racism in this country, and I believe it is absolutely, absolutely, we, we live in a system where there is systemic racism, that means the, the system is racist. It's not just a bunch of Republicans in the Deep South. It means the system that has been built. And when you go to blue states like California or blue states like New York with these horrific, horrific conditions within which we're expecting children to learn, that's the standard. There's no greater example of systemic racism than those school districts that don't have a choice. And I don't mean a voucher choice. I mean a, a voice or a choice in how their children's lives are going to be bettered because the system was created by a party that is not interested, not focused, and not prioritized in challenging their own orthodoxy and challenging the own voices and interests in their own party to improve the lives of the least among us. And that is something that I wholeheartedly reject. And this I'm passionate about. You want to start talking about poor brown kids and poor black kids who don't have a chance in this country? I'm going to fight for them. And I will fight both parties. And I have. And so when you talk about the, the lack of an education policy on the part of Republicans, that is absolutely true. I've, I've never said that Republicans have had a better education policy because they don't. But that does not mean that Democrats are doing a good job. And we need to stop with that false equivalency. Because Republicans have decided not to have a voice doesn't mean that Democrats are doing a good job because they are quantifiably not. This does kind of have it all. It does. It, <laughs> it does. There's the one other thing. So there's one other note here. And this, man, this we're going to go on for a minute here. But um, uh, CJ, our, our producer, just wrote me a note and he said, as a, as a fairly progressive white person, I agree with Mike. Ask him to expand on how it is shaping the shift away from Democrats among not white people. That's a great question, and that is a very large part of what is going on. The, look, one of the biggest problems, and again, as just a, an observer of this, as a political professional, is we try to look at competition or elections as binary choices. This goes back to the previous problem. It's not just a two-party system. It's that all of the, the nascent third-party efforts view the world in the same exact way, which is why they're unsuccessful, by the way. Okay, but set that aside. Except the forward party, but we'll talk about that later. Oh, God. We'll come back. Yeah, we'll, we'll, don't, wanna, we'll, don't get me started set, on that Set that aside. One. Set that aside. The problem with black and brown communities, and by the way, black and brown voters are the moderates in the Democratic Party. Right. Those are the moderate voices. Lene okay? would tell you that. 
Of course, the well, the, the the data would tell us that, and the election results would tell us that. The rightward shift that is happening is happening with Hispanics and African Americans. These are the people whose policies are not served by the Democratic Party as it currently exists. I grew up in a working class FDR Democratic Hispanic household. Okay, so I understand. The, the need, and it's, it's largely the perception of race that, that begins, especially black and brown people, to, to find a home in the Democratic Party. But it manifests itself in extremely low voter turnout. There is this reason why Latinos do not vote. There's a reason why African Americans have lower voter turnout rates. And it's because they are not given a real choice in elections that are going to quantifiably improve their life. Now, you can say that's the Republican Party's fault if you're a deep, deep partisan. But the truth of the matter is, just because the Republicans are bad, and they are, doesn't mean that the Democrats are doing good for these people's lives. So the, the, as, the, as the Democratic Party becomes more and more consolidated as a white, wealthy, college-educated party, the realities of those policy priorities and those interests and what they're willing to die for from a policy perspective, are getting further and further and further away from working class, poor, black, and brown people, which is the fastest growing segment of the electorate. And so what you're seeing is not as much a move towards the Republican Party as a shift away from the Democratic Party. One of the biggest challenges with education, and it gets back to some of what we were talking about earlier, is that education is not a federal issue by and large. In fact, something like less than 10% of funding, if you have a school-age kid, the vast majority of the funding formula that that goes into how your child is, is be, day in public school is being funded is not federal. It's a state and local conversation. And there are not good one-size-fits-all solutions, but we also are not investing in uh, cultivating reasonable thinking people in things like state legislatures who are driving who are driving the results who are who could help make things better and it turns into this super super partisan argument and we ignore the data i mean the most recent naep scores which i know we talked about a little bit earlier this summer they they showed that not only are NAAP scores going down, they're especially going down for black and brown and low-income American students. And it's not COVID, right? And it's not, neither party has provided solutions that are helpful. And we continue to rely on bad metrics. We rely on metrics like how much funding does a, a single state have? There are lots of rankings of how states are doing in education based on how much funding, how much they fund per student. Well, some of the most highly funded states are doing the worst in education because of interest groups, like the fact that huge amounts of money in some of those places are going to administrators. So education is one of these issues that is so layered and you can get into things like, um, approaches to integration to uh, in third grade should we be should we be uh, moving kids out of third grade if they haven't learned to read should we uh, uh, ha- should we have revisit why we went away from phonics yes. which actually was really There's effective a great, in helping great listen to the New York Times story. About this. yes yes <laughs> but all of this is to say that this is an issue and I think to Mike's point about treating these things as a binary 
we treat this as an issue. Like it's between, it's between the book burners on the Republican side or the leftists who say you shouldn't have a say in your child's, in your child's education and you don't know any better and that they're basically a ward of the school. And as I know I've said on this podcast before, an, a national Democrat who's a prominent national Democrat, and I won't name him because he wouldn't say this publicly, said to me, and this burns in my mind, about a year and a half ago, we were on a call and he said, you know, Republicans are fascists and Democrats are aliens. <laughs> like there, this is yet another, this has it all. I said, this has it all because this is yet another example of a policy issue where no one is actually putting, taking their partisan cap off and working for better outcomes for students at the state and local level, which is where we can actually impact policy change and actually have an impact on test scores and success of our next generation. Okay, this is a really good segue because I want to put something on the table from the student's perspective um, in all of this. So um, last week, I'm, uh, I'm scrolling through Instagram in the morning having my coffee and I stumble across this post by the Free Press and it's titled A Constitution for Teenage Happiness. And I swipe over one more. And Imagine my surprise when I see the smiling face of one of our family friends, Ruby LaRocca, who had just won the high school essay contest that the Free Press had had held. And um, this this essay is is brilliantly written, first of all. Um, but Ruby is obviously writing from the perspective of a student who, from the distance afforded to her by uh, being a homeschooler, recently withdrawing from public school and now uh, finishing her studies at home, she says she can see more clearly why so many of her peers are essentially um, miserable. And there are a couple of pieces here that stood out to me. Um, one of the reasons she says uh, her her peers, um, well, one of the reasons that she said that she enjoys homeschool life is that in school there is an absence of books. And even teachers, this is how she puts it, even teachers have argued for the benefits of shorter digital resources. Last April, the National Council of Teachers of English declared it was time, quote, to decenter book reading and essay writing as the pinnacles of English language arts education. And then she goes on later on, and I think this, this sentence is beautiful. The taut cable of high expectations has been slackened, and the result is the current mood, listlessness. And so I was reminded by this essay um, of my time as a homeschooler. I think listeners might not know this, but I was homeschooled until fourth grade. Um, and homeschoolers often get made fun of. And so do the parents who choose to homeschool their kids. And especially do the people who advocate for parents having the right to homeschool their kids. And sometimes they're even vilified. And so... I wanted to ask you, Lucy, specifically since you've worked on school choice in the past, and I know some of that work has sort of come back to haunt you because of the lack of oversight that happens. But given the, all of our preceding conversation and the state of K-12 education, what does school choice potentially have to teach us now? And also, what did you think of Ruby's essay? Well, now, these days, I try to use the term education reform instead of school choice, because that's the term that's non-threatening <laughs> to right. our friends on the left. Right. 
And when I think about education reform at large, I think it's when you really get down to brass tacks and think about the idea that a child could be trapped in a bad school or not even in a bad school, but in a school that isn't working for that kid for whatever reason, because it's just out of step with them. The idea that we would say there are two paths. One, if your family's rich, you can go to a private school. But if you're not rich or there just isn't money, you know, you don't have daddy long legs, then you are stuck in that school and you have no other choice. That's so fundamentally un-American and horrible that it still is kind of bewildering to me that there are big factions of folks on the left out there who would truly deny parents and students and families the right to choose alternative education uh, situations. And it's really, uh, it's, it's a really, when you get down to it that way, it's really disturbing. Um, you're right. Some of the work I did earlier in my career has come back to haunt me because I worked a lot on education savings accounts, which are in many ways vouchers. And the thing that comes back to haunt me about that is that there were no accountability standards put into place. So you have government money being sent to families who determine their children's educational outcome, so taxpayer dollars, and then we have no idea how how it ends up working. But I am still a huge proponent of education reform, of school choice, and of, of parents' ability to, to make those choices. I think the thing that I thought was really sweet in Ruby's, well, actually thought she seemed like a delightful person and a person I probably would have enjoyed. She is a enjoyed. delightful person. You, you, you would <laughs> really enjoy her. <laughs> she, she shares my penchant for um, memorizing poetry. Um, but one of the things that I thought stood out was that she talked about how, and she has an interesting con- contrast points because she spent most of her educational career in traditional schools, but of the feeling of just being in school to get through things quickly. And and students like Ruby, who are obviously high achievers, are, are by and large not the kids we're worried about. We're worried about kids who aren't being taught to read, right? Or uh, are not achieving basic proficiency. But But I was thinking how interesting it is that Ruby was underserved too. And in the feeling that of, of being, she talks about being rushed through things, that like the way to be successful as a successful student in the school she was in, and it made me think about the schools I went to at times, the idea was like, just get through the lesson plans more, uh, faster, you know, get to the next level faster. And that now she has time to to pause and and really think. I thought that was beautiful. And there was something else that she talked about, she really, I mean, in by and large was talking about getting back to liberal arts in a lot of ways. And I was thinking about how that reflects, I think, or highlights a tension that we now have around liberal arts versus vocational school or uh, college versus vocational school. And a lot of times when you think about all the other problems that stem through from the K-12 crisis or how we structure ourselves as a society. You start hearing about 
the exploding cost of college and the student loan debt crisis, but also, uh, of course, the in in contrast, people feel like they can't get entry level jobs without college degrees, and and so then the answer is uh, vocational school, and should we invest more in that? And I guess everything should be on the table, but. The essay from Ruby, and I know that the Free Press solicited other essays from teens, and I, I would be interested if others touched on themes of their interaction with their educational life. It really left me feeling reminded of how there just is not a one-size-fits-all approach for children. They're all so, they're different, just like we're all different, and we all uh, choose <laughs> to paths that are different from each other and that that we we have to take a more nuanced view that's a ramble but that's that's what it left me with i think that's beautiful um mike there's one other question i wanted to ask you about and we were we were going to talk about um young people and capitalism and their views on capitalism today but i think maybe we should save that for the sake of time but i did while we're on education um Touching on financial literacy for a minute, there's a there was a story out of California about a ballot initiative that would um, require teachers in California to teach kids basic financial literacy. And this has been one thing I've talked about before: is uh, between civics and financial literacy, we're we are not giving kids like yes, the 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 ability to read and write to begin with, but graduating kids who don't have the fundamental knowledge of how to operate as citizens in a republic and also how to keep themselves from being neck deep in debt by the time they're 18 years old, which essentially becomes a ball and chain for the rest of your life um, unless, unless you get lucky and figure out how to get out of it on your own. We actively don't teach kids anything about that. Um, and so I wonder what you think, A, the prospects of this ballot measure are, and B, I noted at the bottom of the article in Politico that was talking about this, that, well, the teachers aren't crazy about it. Um, and I think one of the reasons is because they'd have to make room in their already packed schedules of required learning. And one of those things is that everybody has to complete a course on ethnic studies or something similar to that. It just feels like we're prioritizing the wrong things. I don't know. I wouldn't characterize it that way. Uh, well, no, I, I would. I, I, I think the ethnic studies um, suggestion and saying like that's a lesser priority than financial literacy. Um, I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't make that assertion, especially in a, in a pluralistic democracy that's teetering and it's on the brink in large part because of demographic change. I don't care how damn financially literate you are. If society is coming apart because we can't get along yeah. and appreciate yeah. and understand each other, then I, I don't know. But but your point is is taken, uh, which is we are not. Look, when I was when I was growing up, I keep coming back to that on this. When I'm back in the old I days, mean, you're doing it to wagon, yourself at this point. Yeah, I know. We we had uh, you know home ec, right? I, I was taught like sewing and cooking and like basics, like how to how to live, right? I, financial literacy is absolutely one part, one piece, and one component of that. And I, I too, have long been an advocate of that. But look, I, we got to do some triage here. Like almost half of Latino students who go into the community college system in California can't read at an eleventh, twelfth grade level. They can't read in that. So, 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 so we should we should like 
add financial literacy uh. to that? Like there's some there's some basic fundamental problems with our K-12 system that need to be addressed. And Lucy said it very eloquently, and, and she really described California. California is, by the way, California is the most segregated state in the union. I could tell you by zip code everything that you need to know about you, but, but racially segregated because there's an enormous class divide in our state. Wealthy people are overwhelmingly white, and the schools in those districts are overwhelmingly good performers. Black and brown people live in zip codes in areas where the, the wealth, you know, it's much below the, the median level of, of, of average, you know, state incomes, and the schools are very low performing. So at some point, we have to just be honest about this and say, does this matter to us as a state, as a country, as a people, as a political party, and start addressing some of those fundamentals? Because until you can do reading, writing, and arithmetic, I don't think you can get to financial literacy. I think it's great. I think it's a great topic. I'm a huge fan and advocate of it. I wish I'd done you know, more with my kids on a lot of this stuff. Um, and, and I would have loved to have had schools talking about compound interest and how to, you know, how to... Uh, deal with the financial world, especially in the digital age. Absolutely. But when I look at the system of, of what we're actually asking students to, to do to survive, it's not as basic as financial literacy. It's much more elementary than that. It's, it's literally reading. And, and so when we, until you start getting remedial reading numbers from high school graduates down to a tolerable level, uh, which we're not anywhere near or close to, I, I just, I, I don't, uh, that's a priority, that's a priorities issue to me. Well said. Okay. We, uh, we will save this discussion on, um, young people and capitalism. So let's turn to our look aheads, uh, now that we're up to speed Whew, on some of the biggest stories this week. What a show. Um, let's talk about what we're watching. Lucy, what'd you bring? Well, just this morning, the Ohio Supreme Court has dismissed two cases over congressional maps in Ohio. Um, this was expected because some of the groups that had filed the complaints themselves ended up saying, let's have these cases dismissed because of some other factors. Uh, but it's reflective of the latest news in gerrymandering all over the country. Uh, and I know gerrymandering is an issue that Ron is an expert in and has spent a lot of time describing to listeners. But when you get down to brass tacks, it's it's really just an insane situation that we're in. And not to beat a dead horse, but why not? It's why we need to start caring, caring about local races and particular whom we elect in state legislatures and stop anchoring to a political narrative around federal, federal, federal U.S. Congress all the time. Because there are states like Ohio, which we think of as a state that is going way far to the right, and maybe Ohio is having a little bit of a shift right, but Ohio's not that right wing. I mean, in, in 2020, Trump won Ohio, but he won it with 54%. That's not such a crazy swing. And there are states all over the country like this. The state of Louisiana has a Democratic governor, but it has a veto-proof supermajority in the state legislature. The Republican veto-proof state, we're going to talk about Wisconsin, same situation. And it is all because of gerrymandering. And part of why gerrymandering is so problematic is that this, and its relationship to state legislatures is that in most states, 
Those state legislatures are the people who draw the maps. And even in places with independent redistricting commissions, they're the people who choose the people who gets to be who on those commissions. Yeah. <laughs> and so we've seen, and we've just come through this last year, this last cycle was the first year with new maps in most places because we do new maps every 10 years. And several states, including Alabama, including Ohio, just straight up produced unconstitutional maps. And you could say, well, then you just go to court and you say, hey, these are unconstitutional maps. But I have to tell you, the wheels of the judiciary do not spin mm-hmm. that fast. Mm-hmm. And it turns out to be really hard. By the way, who knows who chose those judges? So this latest episode in Ohio, and there are several states grappling with these kinds of issues. It's just a reminder. We got to stay on our toes. We got to keep keep on top of issues like gerrymandering. Sorry to wonk out. Yep. Nope. Good wonk. Well said. We like vegetables. I have a quick one. It's a Bitcoin-related story. There is a guy named Roman Sterlingov who is accused of laundering $336 million. Okay. Feds arrested him back in 2021. He's been locked up ever since then. What he's accused of laundering this money through is by running a platform that is basically designed to anonymize Bitcoin tokens, essentially. You put it in, you get some other tokens out, and then uh, in theory, that is supposed to throw people off your scent if you're doing bad things. And Wired wrote a story about this last year in 2022. There's a for-profit company that's called Chainalysis. And what they do, essentially, since the Bitcoin... Uh, ledger is public and transparent. Everybody can examine it. They run analysis on these transactions and they try to de-anonymize them essentially to guess at who's behind which transactions. Okay. So Chainalysis is a third-party company. Law enforcement are their customers. They give law enforcement tips about who might be a criminal, essentially. They're allowed to point fingers at people and say that, you know, this person might be a criminal. So the prosecution in this case has been unable to produce any evidence that this person, Roman Sterlingov, has actually committed the crime. The only evidence they have is a guess from Chainalysis. They have, they have zero corroborating evidence. Now they're preparing for a trial, which is scheduled for September 14th, and the defense has challenged the only evidence that exists, and they've said you need to essentially satisfy the Daubert standard. The Daubert standard is a rule that applies to expert testimony and it requires that it, for example, has been peer-reviewed, that the methodology can account for how many false positives this software produces, how many false negatives this software produces. Chainalysis has never produced this information. They've never even been asked to produce this information by law enforcement. And when asked how they uh, determine that their software actually works, They say they're basing it on user feedback. Who are their users? Who are their customers? The law enforcement, essentially. So basically, you have this loop where where a for-profit company can point a finger at somebody with evidence, the methodology of which is dubious, and then the feds can go investigate and imprison people. And if they find other evidence of a crime, then they have a case. That is not sufficient to prove a case. So, and this tool is used a lot, especially by federal law enforcement. What it amounts to is a question of whether the evidence that has been used by federal law enforcement to to find a bunch of criminals is actually sound in the first place and whether they can continue using it. So essentially the software is on trial and this is going to become a question of can they satisfy the standard for bringing expert testimony into the courtroom? And 
I think this is a major question for anybody who's interested in privacy. This, to me, is tantamount to the way we know that facial recognition software has been used to identify people, especially black and brown people, who these algorithms were not trained on in the first place, as being suspects of a crime that they didn't commit. This is how we should be thinking about this software being used by law enforcement to then imprison people for years while they are awaiting trial, while they are searching for other evidence that can support the charges against them. So I think this is something very interesting to watch. Mike, what'd you bring? I can't, I can't believe his name is Roman Sterlingoff. That's quite a name for someone who's <laughs> in new currency, in the new currency space. <laughs> it is pretty good. Sterlingoff. I thought your story when you said Bitcoin was going to be about uh, the Texas story where the state of Texas wrote a $31 million check to these Bitcoin miners to stabilize their grid to take their production offline the last couple of days. <laughs> oh, I didn't see that one. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, a good one. I just, this story just came out last night. Wow. Okay. No, um, I got to see that. But for me, all eyes are on China. Yeah. Every mm. day, every day, there is very significant information coming out about China um, and China's deteriorating economic uh, conditions and potential political intrigue, palace intrigue, which has been notoriously wrong, at least the palace intrigue stuff in China, because information is so hard to procure. But the, the, the whole narrative of this strong emergent China, Bloomberg just came out with a report saying, uh, no, we're not only going to downgrade where China's at now, we don't even think that it's going to surpass the U.S. economy in the next 50 years at this point. Like, that's how bad the precipice is that China's on. And if, 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 some of the tea leaves that I think that we're seeing uh, President Xi and, and other political leaders behaving um, are, are indicative of anything. Um, I think there's going to be some very big developments coming out of China that will probably have very significant ramifications in our elections coming up in 2024. So uh, just be mindful. Just just pin that. Uh, be watching it. It's it has a lot. To, it's not just one story. It's it's a cascading effect. It's Russia's military collapse and and in, inability to provide supply chain for things like petroleum. It's a lot of the agreements that are being signed in the South China Sea supporting the United States military presence. It's about Evergrande, the collapse of this uh, real estate investment trust, the largest in the world that just filed for bankruptcy. It's uh, the, the, the population problems that are happening, the inability to recover from the COVID shutdowns. There's, there are very, very significant problems in China, and the way they react in the coming months are going to be very, um, very instructive on what happened to our own domestic, not only economic situation, but political situation. Did you see the Russian defense minister Shoigu suggested trilateral military exercises between North Korea, China, and Russia? Also, that was just a couple of days yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah. It, it really, uh, watch this space. Which, which is which, which to me is not a sign of strength. That's right. a sign of desperation, right. which was probably yeah. worse. Yeah, yeah. Also, by the way, we should note our um, friend uh, Rustem Omarov is now the Ukrainian Minister yes. of Defense. So this is the. Yeah. So Rustem was the uh, lead negotiator, uh, Vladimir Zelensky's lead negotiator for the war in Ukraine. Um, he is one of the people Mike and I got to spend some time with outside of Lviv in Ukraine. And as of earlier this week, it looks like, I don't remember the reason, but Zelensky dismissed the former defense minister. It's corruption. Yeah, right. Uh, and and now Rustam is taking his spot as the defense secretary. One of the most fascinating individuals I think I've ever had the ability to sit down and talk to is Muslim, Muslim Crimean Tatar, Tatar mm -hmm. who is um, U.S. educated. Um, and 
Yeah, it, it was like this cloak and dagger scene out of a, like a James Bond film. We're out in the hinterlands of Lviv having this conversation with uh, with the negotiator just 90 days into the into the uh, the conflict, the war. Excuse me, and uh, just impressed by uh, to see him, be, you know, taking over um, as the Ministry of Defense is gives me great confidence. In, yeah, likewise, in where Ukraine's heading on yeah, this. Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. Uh, okay, gang, let's flip over to Politicology Plus, where. We're going to talk about this Wisconsin Supreme Court justice who might get impeached before she ever hears a case and and also what that has to do with uh, the elections administrator trying to essentially they're trying to the MAGA Republicans are trying to oust her in this key battleground state. Where can everybody find you on the Internet, Lucy? You're still on X? Just languishing on whatever the hell it is, (laughs) X, Twitter, whatever you call it, at Lucy M. Caldwell. And Mike is floating around there somewhere. Do we? I'm, what do you yeah, call? What do you call I, it? There. What do you call? What's the verb for? I, I call you it call Twitter. It Xing. It is, Twitter. It, is this what we do? Is it is is Xing the verb form of posting on X? I refuse. <laughs> I refuse to conform. I'm calling it Twitter. Like as long as I'm on the major news publications <laughs> and it still gives you the opportunity to share, right? And there's still the little bird icon. <laughs> like bet. it's still Twitter to me. I'm I'm still there. So I'm at Madrid underscore Mike. And you can find me Xing around at, at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>